There are many projects going on in the world today for aerospace engineering. Not all of them are quite so flashy and so obvious as heavy lift launch vehicles, but there are some very interesting things going on. For instance, in the launch markets of places like Great Britain. On this episode of the Next Aurora podcast, I have on the show Derek Harris, the business ops manager from Skyrora, to talk about green propellants, starting a business in aerospace, which I'm hoping some of you will be trying to do. Now is the time for action in this field, for those of you who want to try this. I want to get at his unique insights and really his wealth of experience in the fields of finance and aerospace investment. That's this week on the Nexus Aurora podcast. So welcome everyone to the Nexus Aurora podcast. This week we have on Derek Harris from Skyrora. Uh, who's kindly come with us to share some information, some insight about green propellants. But also he has a massive background within uh, uh, finance and starting companies and things like this. You at uh, the UK Sense Conference, uh, believe it or not, I was one of the people who asked you some questions and you were kind enough to share some advice to me about how to get into this business and how to really, how to start something up within aerospace, which is probably, I mean, being honest, it's it's, it must be pretty close to the most difficult kind of company to start, right? An aerospace. That's correct, Phil. And I, I remember the conversation well. It's, uh, it was a great time down at UK SEDS this year in Manchester. Uh, the big thing around starting up a company in aerospace is having the right ideas, actually putting together business plans, putting together registering it of a company. They are fairly easy activities to do. But it's when you figure out what your idea is and then all the hard yards that need to go into making that come to fruition. Uh, those are the difficult parts and often the unseen challenges uh, that people come up against. So there's only so much a good idea can cover. After that, it takes someone to be a bit tenacious and make sure that they don't sort of let their head drop when they, they fail for time to time, which always happens. Yeah, no, that's very fair. That's very fair. Uh, I, I, my background's academia, so there it's sort of, uh, you fail a lot, but the, there's never really that much cost for failure. So you're, you're always thinking, you know, what's, what's the next thing that I should write about and so on, you know, uh, what, what will I discover in my project? Uh, and you, you do an experiment, it doesn't work. It, physics, the joke is always that you could tell a physics experiment because it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't give you any results at the end. So I'm used to this, you know, you iterate through, you're like, oh great, I didn't get anything today. But of course, uh, in, when it comes to a business and you have, you know, like you, you have now a pressure to make sure that everyone's getting paid and so on, you have to actually survive. Suddenly, uh, it's rather different as, 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 I, as I see it. But I, I want to give this a try anyway. And I think a lot of people do. The question is just how, how, to, how to get the money necessary to start up. And of course, this is a very capital intensive business, potentially. We're building rockets, for example. Well, that's correct, yeah. So for ourselves at Skyrora, the building rockets is obviously, as you say, hugely capital intensive. So up until we actually start to launch, the there's no real return of income or investment. So this is why a lot of people don't invest in rockets. The old joke is, uh, how do you become a millionaire in space? Start as a billionaire and build a rocket. It, it's, it really is capital intensive and it's something that we're very lucky to have our founder, Vladimir Levikin, uh, which has taken us this far uh, before looking for any outside investment. I think for anyone that is looking to open up a company, figure out that niche, figure out where the, the product or what you've got lies. Uh, not everything will be as capital intensive as building rockets. So if it's a software uh, for maybe monitoring space debris, if it's uh, 
a new type of attachment to help separate satellites from launchers, things like this. These don't have the same capital uh, requirements. And these can often have different funding routes for that. So instead of an angel investor or a VC, it could be something as simple as an ESABIC going into an accelerator, or it could be crowdfunding, which is something I've looked at on other companies as well. So uh, it's a very interesting what can ways to be financed nowadays. It's not just the, the traditional methods that used to be there. That's amazing. Crowdfunding. Like, do you think that could work actually for something like aerospace? Yeah, it really depends on the product. So there's uh, funding variations out there, like Cedars and things like this is one that comes to mind. And actually, there's another one of crowdfunding, which uh, I, I look at quite a lot. It's not actually to do with aerospace, but I do it a lot for independent comics and things like this. I, I like to sort of sponsor art and things along this way because anyone that knows me, I'm a huge comic book geek. So it's my way to give them back a, a little bit there to, for up-and-coming stars. but. In regards to a product along those lines, so yeah, I don't see why it can work. If if your capital uh, is only going to be a running cost for you and maybe three or four others, really what you're looking to raise is a couple hundred thousand. That can be done through crowdfunding and smaller. And crowdfunding isn't always as it traditionally was where it was individuals. You will find that that is a large part of it. But then some, you find that some smaller VCs actually look at crowdfunding and where, where it used to be crowdfunding was for very small projects, it's now a lot of the time can be work hand in hand. Uh, it's not like you go to crowdfund and, but can't go to a VC. A, it, they can work hand in hand quite well. And it's been shown in other tech, tech sort of projects, deep tech and uh, things like this at the moment. So. I don't see why aerospace won't continue into that marketplace. I see. Well, I mean, yeah, thinking about it, so long as so long as the the particular thing that you're doing really matches for uh, the format of crowdfunding, I could see maybe in some senses that could that could work. Like, uh, I suppose, what's the uh, what what are the characteristics? So it would have to be something where if you're if you're engaging in crowdfunding, you should expect to see something back. Uh, so the, the total amount of money required should be small enough that your fan base would be sufficient to actually push it to completion. Uh, it should be something which gives gives people back something along the way. So I, I know a lot of video games and so on. I, I don't do comic books, but I do do video games and I do uh, board games and things like this. I, I agree that um, cultural innovations are just as important, perhaps in some ways more important, because the, you know, the money that comes from changes in culture and aesthetics can be sufficient to do like, incredible things. Historically, right? I, you know, you look at some of the some trends, uh, like with what amounts to just changes in aesthetics, and the money can just appear overnight uh, where it, where it was not there before. And likewise, you, I can think of many fields where the technology is there, but the the public will isn't there. And even though it's a really good idea, it just can't materialize. So that perhaps feels like this are a great innovation as well, and a great way to get into aerospace, even though you don't get a rocket at the end. So th these are quite these are quite clever insights. So I suppose, uh, depending on what's what's to be done, maybe then it does make sense. I, again, it's like uh, oh, it it does depress me a little bit. In the modern day, everything seems to be done much more easily with digital products and things of this kind, as opposed to real physical things. I mean, there, there's there's good sense in that, and obviously, from a business perspective, the zero marginal costs that you get from you know uh, digital products in general are really advantageous. 
and they give some really amazing pro uh, possibilities, especially that for the little guy. Suddenly, the little guy can really get somewhere. Whereas before, you know, I, I I'm just some random guy, and I want to make a ship to take people across the Atlantic. Oh, good luck. How are you going to do that? Right now, some random guy really can get quite far and give a lot back to society. The trouble is, you know, like life in front of a screen, it doesn't feel quite right to me. Like I'd love to graduate from this to, you know, something like what you see in science fiction, you know, like or in the comic books, the vision of space that people used to have. I'm hoping that uh, there there are ways opening up now within aerospace that might give us a glimpse into that kind of a future at some point. The question is just how, right? Well, to be honest, there are so, there are so many programs uh, nowadays. As I said, I'm a big fan of the ESA Bic Accelerator. So if you have something, you can go in there. They will review your business plan. And if it has legs, so you may not have an end user yet or anything like that, but if it has legs that could continue on into the sector, you will get that first 50, 60,000. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head to help deliver whether that be building towards a user interface to building a prototype to which can then sort of take someone in. And okay, 15, 60,000 isn't going to build you a rocket, but could it build you a new air breather apparatus? Could it build you a new dispenser? Could it build you something more hands-on? So as you say, yeah, when it comes to data and dealing with data, on average, for every pound invested, you get about £10 back. This is why the government in the UK has spent so much in satellites, because it raises so much revenue back. They get their money back quite quickly, and that revenue goes back in. And obviously, we've seen how, I'm not shy to say it, but the satellite sector has really carried the space sector in the UK uh, over the last 10, 15 years. And that's because of how they had that return back, the return, and then the data companies being able to work on it. And thankfully, because of them, that's allowed Skyroda and, and the spaceports and such to become a thing. But using ESA-BEC, using EIC accelerators, you have the European Union directorates, they all come out with different funding. The problem at the moment is unless you know where to look, Phil, you can't find it. I have seen programs running for alternative food sources. I've seen it running for different adapters and rockets for you name it. I have seen a call for it, but I, me and two of my team literally spend hours a week going through every single procurement, every single portal, working through these. And the only reason I remember things like the food sources is because it stands out to me. It's like, that's interesting. It's nothing to do with what I do, but that is interesting. And, but, being part of Space Scotland, I deal with the universities, I deal with all the other companies in the sector. Well, how this works for me is I can hear, I hear someone, so there's uh, Natasha that was previously with Space Scotland. She was a micro uh, astrobiologist, sorry, I think it was. And she really much was all about that sort of thing. I was like, oh, did you see there was a call out for this? So it's being able to spread that word, but this that only works because we're a small group. As you said, you come from one university, you could find someone in Southampton University or Bristol University, all similar ideas that if we could get you together on that one call, could bring that next product to market, whether that's the, the next person that's going to eat a spirulina burger on the route to Mars or whether that's using 
whatever it is the new product may be. It's the finance is there. It's making it clearer for people how to get it. And the ideas are there. That's one thing, again, that UK said, the amount of ideas that yourself, Phil, and others were speaking to me about. I'm blown away. The UK still has that reputation. You can literally have a look at something that's already built, say it may be a process it takes two hours. We will find a way to knock one hour out of that process just so we can go and enjoy a pub on a sunny afternoon like today. <laughs> a pint in the pub. Uh, we, we are that sort of nation. We, we, we look to be able to strip things down to do it better and, and try and push forward. And the money's there. We just need to find a way to connect people like yourself and your listeners, Phil, and those actual calls so the right people can get the money and move those business plans forward. And that's what's driving, going to drive the sort of next part of this, the new space. I hear other people call it next space as well. So whatever you want to call it, these are the ways to drive it forward. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it seems like this is, this is a radically different sort of skill to engineering, like what you've just described. So uh, I see, you know, Peter Thiel? The, yes. I, the venture capitalist. I mean, I, I expect so, right? Like, he's, he, he, he's great. I absolutely love his stuff. Uh, I've, I've read his book, Zero to One. I thoroughly recommend it, especially if you are trying to start a company yourselves. You know, like in this particular episode, by the way, I think we're going to be uh, focused on a, a lot on how to actually get things going. So a, a lot of people, as you say, have great ideas, but nothing really happens. Nothing's happening yet in the space sector. We're sort of poised over the edge, not really believing that our wings are going to work. And there's this enormous chasm before us. If we just jumped, maybe we'd fly. Maybe we wouldn't. Staying here right now, you know, like uh, it will recede away, and there'll be there'll be no 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 space for us to jump if we don't do it in the next like twenty or thirty years, I think, because other countries will take us over. And so, for my listeners around the world as well, you know, uh, we have an opportunity now, perhaps, to do impressive things with space that might not last forever. So, getting this stuff going, it requires. Uh, Peter Thiel says typically you have two people to start a company. That's like the minimum. One's the, the tech guy or the, the product guy, and the other one is the sales guy. So that connecting people together and understanding, understanding how to structure a business and so on, understanding how to, where, where to get money from, who your customer base is actually going to be, what the product really is from the perspective of the consumer, not the technical aspects, but the, consumer, the, the consumer's perspective, why would they buy it? That kind of thing. This is absolutely critical, just as critical as the, the technical aspects, what's actually going to be built and, you know, how, how do you solve differential equations and so on. On the other side, right? So Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Steve Jobs alone uh, could sell maybe anything, but he wouldn't have anything in particular to sell. It would just be like a, a, a plastic rectangle. Maybe he could get that. But uh, it would be very difficult even for him to convince me to buy a plastic rectangle that doesn't do anything. Whereas Steve Wozniak... Unfortunately, he can't can't start a company himself, even though he should be starting companies himself. He, he's he's immensely talented at actually constructing things. So you need these two. What you've described then is the lack of the uh, the, the the business guy, the sales guy of the of the pair that appears. I think a lot with uh, you know you you go online like it's it's so easy to find forums where people are talking about new things that can be done in space. There's a lot of energy in this sector, as you say, in the UK, but elsewhere around the world, I've seen it everywhere. Nexus Aurora is a, com a completely global organization. We have some really great ideas coming from all over the place. Uh, some of them are really quite left field. You're like, really? I mean, I hadn't considered that. 
but then you sit down and you think about it, it actually makes sense. The trouble is, of course, that uh, you know, whilst you can, you can sketch something out quite well on a forum, that bridge from the forum to a working company is quite difficult to surpass. There are so many, so many gaps there that, uh, well, like the typical NASA type guy, the PhD guy, m myself, we're not particularly, I don't know, PhD guy, Na I don't work for NASA, but that type, the, the tech guy, as opposed to the sales guy, uh, the things this, the tech guy can't do are the things that are missing at the moment, especially for the more impressive parts of uh, the space industry that are just waiting to get started. So this is quite exciting, and I think a critical part, part uh, a critical piece of the puzzle that we haven't really got yet. So it's great again having you on board and having this kind of insight. Uh, you're one hundred percent correct there. So going back to Manchester when we were speaking uh, and when I was on stage, I was talking about the importance of communication, and that's the case. I am not a technical person. Everything I've known, and you heard me on stage, I have been sat down by our head of engineering all of our engineers and said, right, teach me. I am a sponge. Literally, don't expect me to build upon it or build it, but explain it to me. How does our engine work? How does this work? Okay, let me go out and talk to people. Let me go and bring people to us. And that, that's it. It's without the tech side and without the sort of business side, it doesn't, you can't work. So that's bang on from what he was saying, the two people needed there. And my own experience, what I found as well, uh, with especially with Ecosine, which is our environmental fuel, uh, so taking previously unrecyclable plastics and turning it into usable rocket fuel, sustainable aviation fuel, and so forth. It's a difficult market. It's something I've never really had much to look at. So from a business point of view, the first thing I did is I reached out to a local investor, Jackie Wearing. So she was uh, one of the leads at the time in an investment consortium called uh, Investing Women. And it was all female investors who mostly it was biotech and pharmaceuticals they looked at. But I spoke to her and said, look, I really appreciate a chance to sort of pitch this idea to you and get your feedback. And she's like, well, it's not really my industry, but she says, well, give it a go. So I got to get up and sort of pitch the idea to her and she said, great idea what you're looking for doesn't fall into a wheelhouse, so she had to pass. You would think, okay, that's a major downfall. Uh, that's an investor passing. But what she did do with me is she gave me great feedback on our pitch, uh, on our data room. So a data room, for those who may not have came across it, is where you put your financial figures. It's where you put various different documents. If you've got IP, uh, the certificates, things like this. And she helped me build that out to be much more professional than even I had it. Uh, and again, as I say, because I come from finance, I have seen some of these, but I wouldn't say I was a grade A master at them. So having her help me with this has been great. And then I managed to get on board to go to the World Expo in Dubai. Uh, not long afterwards. And then again, I had Joanne Peters and David Alexander OBE, both of which are Scottish people who work in the sector and they're called Global Scots. So we have a program in Scotland called Global Scots, which are successful people in the sector who come back and try and help companies this way. And both of them have done tremendous amount of help when trying to work on the business case, doing introductions, things like this. 
and this is what my sort of business background has helped with. Uh, so I've got these technical geniuses who've managed to take it from a basic pyrolysis all the way up to being able to make rocket fuel out of waste plastics. But we weren't going to get much further without sort of getting that investment in. And that these guys have really helped with that, that I've mentioned. Uh, so that backs up exactly what we're talking about there, the, the need for communication. Don't get me wrong. Once in a while, you get that diamond of a PhD or that diamond of an engineer, the one who is business minded and academically and sort of PhD minded. If you manage to get one of those, you lock them in handcuffs and you keep them in your company as long as you can, uh, because they are a, an absolute diamond of a find and you don't get many of them. Uh, but there are a few out there, I have to admit. Mm. I mean, Elon Musk surely accounts for this, right? Very much so, yeah. He's certainly one there uh, that you could go to for that. But the, there are yeah. a few other companies, if you sort of look out at uh, tech companies, some of the AI and robotics and things coming out, there's two or three that are within that at the moment. But as I say, that if I had more time, I could probably think it, but off the top of my head, I can't think of a couple more examples. Uh, but I know there are a couple out there that, uh, especially in the AI world and robotic world that I've looked at, and they they're there. Uh, they don't need that other person, but they're very very rare. So po- unless you are that person, don't don't believe you are. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. probably the best mm-hmm. advice on that. Try try and get someone, whether it's a mentor. As I said, that's kind of what Jackie did with me. She mentored me through, uh, so I could learn more about the VC process and sort of going going to VCs, and then. I was lucky enough to have Joanne and David both sort of help me work towards gearing. So at that point, obviously, I was going out to Dubai to do it. That's a different marketplace than the UK or US and Europe. I have some background there, but knowing if, for example, if they say they will be there at nine o'clock in the morning for a meeting, there is a good chance they may not turn up till 11 o'clock because that is a sort of cultural thing. Uh, Right. Little things like this and not to be disheartened if they scroll in two hours later. Uh, and this is things like these that they have managed to teach me, is, uh, which is great in the understanding of this. And again, it was something I touched base on during that communication is understanding the, the culture that you're speaking with. And as I say, that knowing that helps you bring your product forward. So it's all good playing in your own backyard. But when you get to that stage, you want to expand it further. You, you need that additional help. Yes. See, I've been thinking a lot about this. So the uh, trying to trying to boil down what what's actually going on when you have technically minded people who, for one reason or another, find it like difficult to identify that they really need like a uh, a person with a business background, or perhaps the opposite. One could maybe think of uh, examples of this. I'm tempted to say Trump. Uh, apparently, that's a that's a political thing. I don't do the politics side of things, I'm, but I'm just observing. I mean, he he might be an example of a uh, a, a business guy who gets by without needing any you know like a, a technical side to, to to what he does. Uh, and then maybe you could think of maybe uh, Nobel Prize winners or something like this as being the other extreme. So Richard Feynman as being a tech guy who genuinely believes he can get by without. Any any uh, networking, any business guys at all, openly makes fun of, in fact, uh, the constructions of society, things like patents or um, uh, 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 established hierarchies and so on. He's famous for this. And it's very funny. Like, the guy's very charismatic. I absolutely love Richard Feynman. You know, 
I studied physics, so everybody loves Richard Feynman there. But but there's there's uh, I, I I'm trying to boil down like what what it what it is is happening that I think when you can get uh when you can get large groups of people all with radically different skills, which amounts I think to like different personalities. Like you look inside their brains, like a you know if you if you sit down and you talk to someone for a half hour and they're very different to you. It, like you can't help but sort of notice it just from just from the the types of things that they focus on, like where their minds go. People can be very different from each other. The only way you can get, I think, a bunch of people with radically different skills, which, as far as I have seen, means radically different people whose minds are quite alien to each other. The only way you can get them all in the same place, focusing on the same thing, is with something like a shared aesthetic, like a shared vision. So what you were describing, you sit down with the uh, with, with the 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 women's only invest investor were they angel investors were they venture capitalists? It, it was uh they were a mix and believe there was mostly angel investors who were in the group. Angels. So you sit down with with the with the angels and you you explain your your idea. Uh, if it's so, we we'll, we'll get on to ecosystem like in green propellants and so on. That's really quite compelling. Uh, if it's it, but if they say it's not it's not our thing, but we still want to help you out. Oh, that's only possible if the grander vision for what you're trying to do fits in with what they're all about. So if you're able to match up a grander vision that is compelling to a large group of people, especially people whose minds work in different ways, that might be sufficient to build up something great. So hence, I talk a little bit on this podcast, I've talked a little bit before, about aesthetics and uh, what the future should look like. Again, you know, like I think science fiction is greatly overlooked because it has the, this power, you know, like the, everyone said, you know, you, you mentioned Star Trek and suddenly like the, an aesthetic pops into your head. Maybe you don't like it, maybe you do, but at the very least there is an aesthetic there. Like clearly you can imagine what, well, I mean, you, you take the, the, the crew of the Starship Enterprise or something like this, right? There's, there's vastly different people, each with different skill sets and they're all working towards the same goal. So that if you have a skill set that's uh, distinct from perhaps you know the more famous ones there, so like you know the chief engineer guys, try Scotty's like trying to keep the uh, keep, keep the warp core going or whatever it is. If you're if you if your skill is in communications or so on, there, there's a person for that, and you can imagine sort of incorporating yourself within that larger group that's all trying to do the same thing. So it's like a, a shared aesthetic that might be what's missing and what you can acquire if you're able to get uh, you're 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 in a position where you're getting people together to get the same sort of goal that might be the missing thing so you, you look at things like um apple computers and so on clearly that's the invention of an aesthetic and then you you know you can bring people in uh and sort of uh, intoxicate them with the idea of this so eco scene in, in general and green propellants i think might be a part of this like its own aesthetic its own um its own vision for the future so uh, a mechanism for the production of rocket propellants that's uh non well Non-polluting, I would say the the major thing, uh, you know, if it's if it's reduction of carbon dioxide emissions and so on, like rocket propellants are dropping the bucket. But then, uh, you know, the, the the hazards of potential rocket propellants, especially like nitrous oxide and so on, or dinitrogen tetroxide, that's horrible for the environment or hydrazine. Like you don't want that to get into the pond, or you know, you 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 drop that in the lake and everything dies. It's horrible stuff. So if you can replace that with something else, that's quite exciting. Is that is that uh, is that the major thing you would say that uh, that brings people at Skyrora together? Like, if you had to summarize their aesthetic vision for what Skyrora really is, how would how would you say it? How would you uh, what it is? I would really say we we have a common vision, and it kind of runs in three lines. So one is 
environmental responsibility, getting Britain and the UK back to space, having a space country, having our own launch capabilities. And the other is innovation and what can we do and how we can move it forward. If we break into each of those sort of trains and pillars, so innovation, first of all, we've made our own 3D printer, which is now the largest in Europe. So that's great. Having a large printer that can do two meters by two meters, that's an amazing thing. But when you add into it, we, we've got the ability to machine, uh, have a machine head in the 3D printer. So we can CNC and print at the same time. So subtractive and additive at the same time is a game changer. You move on top of that, that's opened up a, a whole sort of wane and vision to go down. And for example, we're part of a consortium now of about 13 companies, uh, which are looking at the end of the day to be able to combine different powders at the same time to have different tensile strengths and things like this. So this is the future. That is a vision of 3D printing, how to move that forward. So it can be done in whether it's in zero G gravity, whether it's on Mars or whatever the case may be. So that's kind of from the innovation point of view that drives that team and that section of the companies and what that does, while that vision drives to the future, everything that comes out of it gives us something. So the very first starting point was that larger 3D printer that allows us to print our in-house engines to do it quicker and better and accurately in-house. So that allows us to do them cheaper. And that helps the actual main mission of Skyroader, which is to launch satellites. If we move on to the UK, getting it back into orbit, well, what does that do? Again, that drives for profit, but then that opens up the sector more within the UK. That opens up for satellite companies, for startup companies to be able to get an easier launcher within the UK rather than having to jump jurisdictions to the US, Japan, India, whatever the case may be. So again, the simplistic vision of that is to push us back into space. What follows through from that is all the other wins. So the working with the universities over whether it's certifying certain things that we've printed or bringing on graduate apprentices uh, to have them trained up within the industry. And then the last one I mentioned was the, the responsibility. You've said that there. There are certain chemicals in launch that are just deadly. We don't want to use them. Kindly happy to say Skyroda doesn't use any of them. We use uh, our RP1 out of Ecosine and high test peroxide, which for those that don't really know much about the chemistry of it, breaks down into oxygen uh, and steam. So it's pretty good. And what drove us towards that and it, what we're seeing now with the sustainability roadmap coming out of Scotland and the UK Space Agency has adopted is to try and be better. It's not that the US or India does it badly. It's we're coming back into the space race. How can we do this better with the new technologies? That's new adaptable fuels. So with Ecosine, we have a 70% reduction in carbon through the life cycle of the product. So instead of fossil to fuel from trash to fuel, there's a 70% reduction in the carbon. Uh, what's big for us is the, there's I think it's a four magnitude reduction of sulfur oxides and, and sulfates within the fuel. 
that is a big, big thing that doesn't get spoken about enough. Uh, it's always carbon, which rightly so is one of the biggest, but sulfates is the next one there. So this vision, it gives us something for each of us to grab hold of. I'm very much of the environmental aspects and educational aspects. Uh, we've got people there that love the innovation and the new technology with 3D printer. And then you've got the likes of JJ, our head of engineering. He wrote part of his university work around Black Arrow, which our fuel combination and vehicle is kind of based on. So for him, it's standing on the, side, the shoulder of a giant and taking it forward. So having that combined vision gives each of us everything to go on. And as you said, we all have our different outlooks in life. I'm a very image-based person. So as you said, when I look forward to the vision, yeah, I can't wait to see the Jetsons cars flying across the air and things like this. Uh, whereas JJ might be, well, once we get that launched, can we get a bigger engine that can maybe do this? And, and he'll be more down to the actual technology of things. And that's his driving point. And then we've got health and safety, who, as you say, just wants to get rid of hydrazine and anything that can cause a danger. So everyone has their own vision and their own, own part that pulls into that vision to get us where we need to be. And if we don't have that, you don't get it forward. And it, it's what I really see in the space sector now coming through in the UK and through Europe and worldwide, we're getting to see a lot more of these people coming in. It's no longer the same traditional people you would see there. Okay, when I say this, it's I, it's no longer the sort of male professors with the patched elbows and the sort of ex-army heading up companies or things. We're beginning to see people like uh, Miri Vajah from the University of Texas, who is possibly the world expert in space debris now sort of pushing forward and leading into the market. We're seeing people coming out of quantum works and pushing that into space. So we're seeing all these different people coming into the sector. And that's only a good thing because it will expand the sector and help drive it forward into new directions, which we probably don't understand is going to go into at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean like the the pulling in of new ideas is critical if we're going to if we're going to make this really work. Especially I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly uh, what the official, the official statements are. You know, or what the official position is supposed to take. But I do get the feeling that uh, the 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 money and the will, the ability that currently exists for making this sort of thing work may not be around forever. So that getting it done soon, getting this sort of thing put together. Uh, with what we have at the moment and really really driving this forward is, is a time critical thing like uh, we don't have an infinite amount of time to really get this done that's the feeling that I get uh, looking at trends uh, especially economic trends in the modern world so you know it's, it's crucial we get this started so that this kind of this kind of thing is uh, is fantastic it's, it's fantastic that Skyrora is working on this in particular now with um, with green propellants uh, I've been thinking a lot about this myself the the, the particular choice of hydrogen peroxide and kerosene, uh, you, you say that there's, there, there's a, a, you said forward as a magnitude reduction in, in uh, sulfur-containing compounds that you're able to get with your kerosene. Is this from just because the plastic doesn't have as much sulfur in it already, as opposed to, say, kerosene that you're getting just for rocket fuel? Well, the best answer I can give to that is ask one of our chemists. But oh, right. I, I think the honest, the honest answer is when we've, we've had it tested compared to the kerosene we use, 
my understanding, and we're still trying to fully figure out how it does it, we believe it's through the process. So Ecocene is a three-stage process. It, they, you take the plastics, it gets broken down, then put through to pyrolysis, to the sort of black oil, base oils. It then goes through hydro treatment and cracking, uh, and then distillation with it as well. So throughout these processes, with uh, we have a catalyst that's involved, and the catalyst is obviously our secret sauce to the whole uh. process, uh, and this is how it works. But when it goes through that, I believe we've not had it fully proven yet, but my chemists do sort of agree with me that it's the fact that the plastic, when it gets made, goes through the refining process. Then when it's broken down, it's being refined again. So out of the, we're taking a lot of the impurities out of it. And this is why we get sort of the less sulfates. We have a slightly better burning uh, fuel because of it as well. So we've seen slight better characteristics to the kerosene that we're burning of about between 1% and 3% more sort of bang for your buck, let's call it. Yeah. Uh, no, We really shouldn't say bang around the rocket, I don't think, but let's use <laughs> bang yeah, for yeah. your buck. Uh, but we believe this is because it's, it's stripping out these impurities when it's taking it from there. So if you think about it, when all even recycled bottles and recycled plastics we've got, they ha- actually have a lifespan. You can only recycle the same bit of plastic, what, maybe I think it's about 10 or 15 times. Uh, please, if someone does know the answer to that, put it on the comment underneath the podcast or wherever it's advertised. I would love to know that exact figure. But when it comes to it, each time you're doing it, basically what you're doing, you're thinning it down, you're thinning it down, you're thinning it down. But each time you thin something down, you lose something. So if this is when we're doing it in this process, we're losing sulfates and we're losing other nasties out of it. That's a good thing. But for me, I, I kind of want to have that mic drop moment where after we get funded, we've got these machines going out. It's producing rocket fuel for us. It's producing maritime fuel for all the containers going across the world. It's started to break into sustainable aviation market. The biggest mic drop moment I could hope for is someone say, well, we've run out of a supply chain. We've run out of plastics. That would be great. Mic drop. Okay, we're out of business because we've no more plastic. That problem has been solved. Yes, that's a vision for me. That's something I really want to push towards. Are we going to be able to do that on our own? No, you're going to have government programs coming in for recycling, things like this. Ideally, what I want to see is the universities. You have a key part to play here, whether that's Delft, whether that's Bristol, Manchester, whether that's Cornell in the States. New fuels. Uh, We have St. Andrews having their Eden campus working towards hydrogen. There's a hundred millions of people in this world. I'm going to say a good lot of them more intelligent than I am working on projects with fuel, which will be the next generation. Imagine being able to do fly a rocket off an electric propulsion. We are years and decades away from anything like this. But if we can get to that stage and it kicks off because of what we've done with EcoScene, I'm happy. I'm delighted. As I said, we okay. can get EcoScene to be the first step there and then someone can come along with the next step which is 10 times cleaner than that. Uh, that's, the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing I would be happy to have to close the business down for. Okay, there's no more plastic, and now we're flying off of water or electricity or whatever the case may be. That is vision. That is sort of what we need to push towards. Uh, but 
we're not going to get there overnight. You need projects like EcoScene. You need projects like coming out of the Eden campus and all those others that some of your listeners will be working on, I bet. Uh, I love to hear it when I'm at these conventions and when I'm at things. So, oh, we're working with algae for everything from food to fuel to air processing on the spaceships and spacecrafts and things like this. If you have an idea, going back to what we're saying at the beginning, take it forward. Look at an accelerator. Look at getting some funding on it. See what's, does it have legs? If so, follow that vision. That's the only way we get to be Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, see, I, I've been thinking about this as well, like as, as, as an example of exactly that kind of thing. Have you seen uh, the production of concrete clinker? It's a bit of a left field thing, but isn't that the point? Like, uh, how they actually go about doing it? Like how the while, while the while the components of uh, the manufacture of concrete, like in in China, they uh, for example, I've seen I've seen systems where you have uh, basically you need a you need a very hot flame to uh, to get uh, the clinker. So I, th- I think it's I think it's calcium oxide, uh, which reacts with uh, rock components in your concrete uh, in the presence of water. So stick them together so that you you know uh, you 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 get your concrete setting and you can. Then build a building out of it. Is the, the general uh, the general principle without going into the chemistry and so on. We need a very hot flame for this to work. So it's not the kind of thing you could do with electrical resistance. That you you can see sometimes um, big piles of like cut up newspaper, right? And then a little a little sort of Archimedean screw. So it's like a little a little screw thing that kind of carries it up, and um, you know mixing it with fast moving turbulent air. You can get a hot enough flame to make concrete clinker. I think maybe with the the addition of a little bit of natural gas. Well, my now, uh, trying to recycle plastic is a real pain. It is extremely difficult. I am actually not in favor of it. In fact, I like like very controversial statement. I think it's a, a big mistake to try to recycle plastic through because the vast majority of the uh, uh, the plastic that you're able to pile up for one particular purpose. Like has you know uh, the the vast majority has to be pure for it to work. Otherwise, you know, like a, a small amount of the wrong kind mixed in, and you can't use it anymore. So that it like it's it's very labor intensive. You have to move it around the world, you know, to to places where where the cost of labor is low enough that you can actually try to do this. If instead there was a way to turn your waste plastic into a fuel for use in industrial processes like the production of concrete clinker. Which you're going to use petrochemicals for anyway, because you can't use electricity. It's it's too hot. Like really, you need a flame for some things, like rocket engines. Very difficult to do that with electricity, right? If you're going to burn petrochemicals anyway, you might as well burn the plastic bags, which are otherwise going to choke the turtles. Right? Don't choke the turtles. It's not nice. If you're going to burn something, you know, what's the harm? Especially if you know when it's happening all in one place with a large influx of uh, of combustible material. Now you have one very good filtration system that's able to catalyze things like uh, nitrous oxides and so on that are produced at high temperatures that otherwise go into the atmosphere and you get acid rain, which is horrible. Or the sulfates, right? Uh, well, so, so, okay, it's going to be like sulfur dioxide, sulfur trioxide. But you can catch those two uh, if you have one high-quality industrial filter rather than 10,000 smaller ones as you try and put on cars, which is very difficult to do. Now it's, you know, the economies of scale can really work quite well for that. So it seems to me like the better thing to do with plastic is to get around to incinerating it. Now, you know, I, if, I, if I was in charge, right, if I was in charge, I can imagine the, the future being for the, uh, the, the you know, e- 
eco eco friendly use of plastics and that 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 concept that you talked about uh, turning plastics into kerosene in this case so that's by steam cracking uh, some process like this to make your plastic more amenable to high quality combustion is probably needed so that that catalyst might come in handy but you can imagine just be able to put out a box that says put plastic in here I don't care what kind it is. You don't need to look at the numbers. There's like seven different numbers on the back. And if you mix them up, it's very difficult to actually use it. Even a little bit that's mixed in kind of corrupts the entire process. Uh, if I just have a big red box, it's like, if it's plastic, put it in here. Don't worry, I'll deal with it. Suddenly now, everyone recycles plastic much more frequently because it's so much easier to do. And the costs associated with doing it are far less. We bring it over to a facility. We transform it by either that catalyst or some other process, maybe I mean, for some of them, you can just cut them up and then under, you know, like maybe with, uh, with higher quantities of oxygen and oxygen rich air, especially at high speed and so on. Uh, it is really warm today, you know, like, so the sweltering heat uh, under, under the right conditions, fire can really catch quite easily. So you imagine with, with a very, very finely cut plastic, perhaps you could get high enough temperatures just from plastic waste to produce concrete and other such things. Well, as an innovation, I think now that has the potential to massively impact the horrible economic, well, excuse me, ecological damage that is happening because of waste plastic and so on. So there we go. That's another like le uh, left field application of some of this technology that Skyroar is working with. I would love to see that done in the future. Well, you, you kind of hit it on the head there. And it's especially with recycling is the, how people have to still manually do it with plastic handling. For us, we are great. Well. And we're great, just super. <laughs> but yeah, the process course. for EcoScene, most places you need to have a clean ability of what, maybe about 98% clean plastic for it to go through. With us, we don't need it to be that high. The only thing we need to avoid is PVC. So yeah, we still have that manual, get that out, because if it goes, as you say, it turns to chloride gas, that starts to eat away, it seals, the seals break, it kills everyone in the room. It's like a, uh, an episode of CSI waiting to happen. But what we've been working with is local authorities and councils here to try and set our plants up near where they're already having all the plastics coming in or next to the actual incinerators. So what can happen is we get the first choice of the plastics. They go through our process, anything else. So we do find PVC. It goes back to them to incinerate. They incinerate the food waste, any other waste that they've got. The way our system works, it goes through the gases that come off power the next two stages. Perfect, So yes. our, what, what's coming out of it, we've got carbon capture on there. We have uh, output of coke and ash. So for every 1,000 kilos of plastic, we're getting 650 kilos worth of fuels. Another 150, I think it is, or 200 uh, of coke or ash. And then the rest is a sort of gases which are broken down to be used throughout the process so as you say being able to have that system and having something similar to to run the plants for concrete it has I've, I've never thought of that so that's just something there as you say it's came out of left field that process working alongside and some of the fuels that come off are the heavy oils and such that are used in these mechanical processes it basically comes out like a distillation process where at the bottom you may have low-grade low alcohol that's used for white spirits and cleaning paintbrushes, where at the top of it could be your 
top-class whiskey sort of thing. In our case, it's the fuels that we're looking to use. So, yeah, these sort of processes, and as I said, these have all came out of little bits of ideas from PhDs, working with technical people, working with dreamers. I want to call them dreamers because it's the best way, looking forward for that vision of the future. So, yeah, it's 100%. And this is what the space industry does so well, is when it pushes forward with its vision, outcomes technology that helps in every other aspect of life. Your MRI machines from the past sort of thing. Okay, that sometimes uh, I always laugh. People were trying to invent a better way to write with a pen in space and the Russians just used a pencil. Uh, it's the only thing time I'm going to give them any plaudits, especially on this podcast, given what they're doing at the moment. But sometimes it just shows the simplistic ways are the best ways. And then other times it does give us the next generation of equipment whether that be medical or, or pushing forward. So th- that having that vision to push forward, and this is why it's important for people to sort of be looking at their ideas and if they have legs p- running with it, even if the company doesn't manage to get past a couple of years, have you taken something further which can be then built upon? That's the only, This is how space works. This is how technology works. And it is, as you say, if you don't take that risk and jump, you'll never know. Absolutely. In fact, well, so uh, actually, this will be this will be one of my only points of uh, contention that I bring in. So, as you mentioned before, the satellite industry really carrying uh, the UK UK space in general as a, as a field. Uh, this is this is one of the things that worry me actually about the direction that we're going in. Uh, so, with with NASA, you know, if the if the vision is something like uh, colonizing the solar system, having humans on another planet. It's easy to see how you can pull people into that. And then, you know, you're up at four in the morning thinking about how to make that work. Or, you know, like uh, you can imagine playing, uh, playing, playing the technological equivalent, the, the peaceful equivalent of a war game, like with people, you know, with, when you're, you're coming up with, uh, you, can, you can imagine this working, right? Just coming up with full technical designs for spaceships doing like a space battle or something like this. Uh, and then having uh from the the energy that comes from that kind of activity having a whole bunch of clever ideas come out the side that you know yeah you come up with things like velcro for instance basically with with nasa that you, you'd never think would be related to to space travel but what i worry about a little bit is that whilst of course satellites do make sense and database solutions do make sense as a way of getting money in they might not be able to provide that same kind of unifying vision that it, you know, it may be more difficult to get up in the morning thinking about like a small CubeSat type thing, as opposed to thinking about you know like a a billion ton space colony or you know like human shaped giant robots, which of course are much harder to to uh, to to get a market for these, of course. But like, it's a, it, I I I don't I don't know exactly what the solution is for this because of course this is where the money is right now, and it's a, and it's a critical importance that the satellite industry has to keep going, but like there has to be. As well, I think like a, a an aesthetic reinvention of where we're going with space. Something more, I think, in line with what people thought the aerospace industry was, say, like seventy years ago, for instance. I'm not sure how we gel these together. And of course, like you know, I, I don't want to, I, I, don't, I don't want to insult the satellite companies and so on. They do a lot of great work, but I worry that it's you know, you grab a seven year old and you you show them Star Wars and you're like, do you want to work on that? And the the seventy year olds like of course, and then you know like you can't stop them drawing it, but you show them say you know um, well so recently I went to Spacecom 
there are a lot of people there they they're sort of they they they're very well dressed uh and you know they're, they're very eloquent but they they have a look on their faces which say you know this small sat thing i i get paid but when's the date you know look at the watches when's the day going to be over you show a 7 year old this I worry that in future they may get bored and they might want to do something else. I, I worry that we don't have that power anymore, and I want to bring it back somehow. Like, do, do you have thoughts on that? I'm, am I am I exaggerating, or you know, have I missed the mark here? Or? No, uh, space has uh, an awful PR problem. <laughs> you you said it there. Uh, I think it was the royal family said it not long ago after I believe it was the Bezos mission with Shatner going up. And it was basically why why are we putting sort of celebrities into space when we should be looking at what can help Earth? But then you look at what these satellite companies are doing, and they are helping Earth. They're looking at the they're tracking penguins, they're checking polar ice caps melting. They have companies that are monitoring forest fires and all over. And there's a company called Trade in Space. Uh, I know the owner Robin very well. They are helping using satellite data, uh, commodities traders get the best commodities. And so I'm not talking your golds and silvers. I'm talking your coffee and your cacao and things like this. They're able to help the farmer on the ground say, well, this area will need watered. If you do that, you will have a 90% increase in your yield. If you do that, your yield will be the X, Y, and Z, which allows the commodities to say, well, we will pay this much and it helps everyone make money and everyone sort of do better. The problem is the data that's coming back isn't used as much as well as that PR problem. So I believe there's a, a silly stat that I'm awful at numbers when it comes to remembering it, but say it's something like 80, 90% of the data that we get back is just logged. It's not used because people don't understand how to use it. If we were to say to those seven year olds, well, some of this data that we get back is your Pokemon Go, your Hogwarts, whatever it is, Jurassic Park, all these games where you walk about collecting things. That's only from 10% of that data. If we can get people to understand what that other 90% of the data is, and this is why Edinburgh recently became the data center in Europe. If we can get people to work on that, mine through that data and make it better and show what space is doing back, it will become more, that will help with that PR problem. Imagine in that 90% of data, there is a key to stopping the, tra the trash patches in the Atlantic and the Pacific because you, the actual data is there. The data will be there for how the tides move and how deep they are, the infrared. All that information is in there. It just takes someone smart enough and with the will to pull that out. They start to pull that out and make their product and then someone is going to say, well, okay, maybe it's not flying cars again in the Jetsons or Star Wars, but it's it's taking that out of the water to make it cleaner again. And if that's done on Earth, what can it do? Well, okay, let's see, that managed to check water. So if, if we then terraform a planet, can we then have a satellite up there so we can monitor the water to see if algae is blooming in it and it's going to cause us difficulties when we terraform Mars and things like this. So. It's using the data we get and using it better. Uh, so having a, a data lake or a data library that is being used greater and then taking the successes from that and advertising it. As you said, it's, it's true. You go to Spacecom, things like this, 
everyone is suited and booted on one of the hottest days of the year. They're, they don't look the happiest. Uh, you find most of them hiding out in the balcony trying to hold their, their meetings. I'm putting my hands up. I was one of those people. Uh, and talking about what we can do to go forward. We're, we're missing the success stories. Unfortunately, we get our success stories from Tim Peake going up and doing his missions up there. The Virgin Launch, no matter what, what people say about it, that was a success. It, it, it did what it did. Mel and the, the team down there before she moved on did tremendously well. Okay, the vehicle didn't work as it happened. That's space. Space is hard. Everyone sees it. Uh, yeah. But it, it's celebrating these things. Uh, and if we can celebrate them more and put the PR out there and take it away from people's views of, oh, space is just for celebrities to go on tourism and things like that. No, space is for showing, uh, making sure we've got drinkable waters, making sure that people in Africa can start doing their crops and eating better so we can have Bono stop talking, telling us that we need to donate to Africa when he buys a brand new yacht. It allows us to do all this on Earth, and then that transfers into the next generation. Let's celebrate these successes. That is what's going to drive the next generation of kids in there when they see that. It's not the guys in suits at these conferences. It's the Bepi Colombo mission. It's the James Watt telescopes showing the new photos of Jupiter, and the kids thinking, well, I wonder what that the, the rings are made up of. Okay, we can look in. It's made of ice and rock. Well, where did that ice come from? Let's work on the data that's coming back, whether that's physical data, whether that's visual data, uh, signal data. There's, we have data coming out of every orifice in the world for us. We just don't use it well enough. And if we can start to manipulate and use that data correctly, our PR problem will disappear. And that will bring the next generation and keep them excited so we're, we're not looking so dour-faced in conferences. Yes. I mean, I I find that quite compelling, and of course, that's very grounded in in modern modern reality, at least. Again, you 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 try and explain this to people the way they thought, say, a hundred years ago, and they'd be like, "Wait, it's like so, so the the data's driving things. What? But but do you make anything? What what's all this stuff about data? And so, but this is how it works in the modern world, and indeed, there's a massive amount of value that's likely stored there. If you're the type of mind that can pull that apart, I I I mean. Again, that, that's not really the kind of thing that, that gets me up in the morning, but I, I am interested in the results of exactly the sorts of things you just described. And if you can pull that apart or find you know, the right mechanisms for pulling that apart, say, uh, innovations within AI and so on, uh, clearly there are massive gems hiding in there, tricks that we can use to massively improve the state of affairs on Earth. I, now, my hope is that perhaps this can be the engine that gives uh, gives a you know a, the gives the financial life force required for human space exploration. Like uh, that is what what you know. Like I can I can stay up till three in the morning just sort of working on a pad of paper. That is what I can stay up doing, rather than and, and working on uh, like moving large things around in space and so on. Uh, rather than uh, what you what you just described. Although of course that is well connected to things that I I am inspired by and things I do want to achieve. For instance, you know, like uh, the oceans and in particular the rainforests of South America, uh, these seem like easy targets for uh, massive innovations. They, you know, where a small amount of effort translates to an enormous amount of, uh, you know, 
damage saves that otherwise really should not happen, like uh, losing the the rainforest and so on. So so that like that's that's got to stop. Uh, and we have the information now coming in, as you say, from from satellites uh, orbiting over the Earth that perhaps could yield uh, yield good results in these fields. Nonetheless, I'd like to see that sort of my my vision is maybe. That especially in the UK, because we, we tend to be overly focused on this sort of thing, at least from my perspective. I, I'd like to see this providing, you know, 10 or 15 billion pounds on the side to enable, uh, like, a manned, a manned uh, mission to Mars. Or, like, uh, like well, uh, maybe maybe even, you know, like a floating city in, in Venus's atmosphere or something like this. Which sounds outlandish, but there's a lot that you could do with a thousand tons. And uh, there are other launch providers that are better suited to large amounts of stuff going into space uh, that might be able to, to get a mission built in the UK up to, to do these kinds of things. Of course, with, with Skyrua, uh, you might be the bedrock on which this is built. You know, that capacity to do, especially, you know, like um, uh, launches from the UK, uh, we're quite far from the equator, so just launches into LEO aren't really our thing. But certainly launches into polar orbits and things like this, which are absolutely crucial for Earth observation and niche uses like this. If, if this can be provided for by organizations like Skyrora, I'd like to see that as like a, a bedrock on which we can build eventually, once we gather these resources that, alas, we do not have at the moment, that our per capita government spending, by the way, on, on space exploration is less than any other significantly industrialized country in the world as a percentage of our GDP. Like what? <laughs> I, I don't understand why. People just don't believe in in, uh, in space travel anymore in the UK. I somehow I'm gonna fix this in the next decade or two. I don't know how. Okay, someone some somewhere is going to have to fix it. Uh, if there's no one else, I'll give it a shot. But I I really want that to change, and I'm hoping that exactly the innovations you talk about and the potential for those innovations, maybe with the next generations, which are uh which think perhaps more naturally in terms of data, might be able to provide for that, and then pull us along and perhaps the you know some of the some of the seven-year-olds coming up now who've grown up connected to the internet perhaps they can be inspired by something so esoteric as this the cyberpunk aesthetic i call it. oh well my i think the current the current iteration i would call apple punk you, you, you wouldn't really call like the uh the internet as it exists today like a cyberpunk kind of thing like it doesn't really feel like that anymore like uh, it's it's got the the Steve Jobs presentation about it, you know, like that, that you don't see any wires sticking out the side. You don't put them in there because like it, it feels more grungy. It feels more down to earth the way you would in cyberpunk. In fact, you hide them away as much as possible. You go for simplicity and uh, the kind of the elegance of a well curated Pinterest account. I, I say this is the aesthetic of the modern day, right? So maybe, maybe there are uh, seven year olds and certainly uh, older kids out there who 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 can like that aesthetic and be inspired by that and certainly if we can grab them their skills are in massive demand in the modern world maybe we can get a lot of money out of that i unfortunately i'm an old school guy so it's very difficult for me to get involved with that kind of thing although you know like, I, I know the basic principles but like um i still i i keep i keep coming back to you know wanting to put like a, a thousand tons of material into in, you know, into a lower orbit, like a giant spaceship to go and explore Saturn or something like this. I, I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe there's something wrong with me. I just, I desperately want to do that kind of thing. And the small sats can't quite do it for me. Maybe, I, I don't know. Well, well, Phil, how about we leave with this idea then? So this is what I foresee is going to happen in the next 10, 15 years. 
you, Falcon Heavy is going to come online properly. It's going to be there. You're hearing everyone say that will drive the price of putting satellites into orbit down. Yeah, but that's not what this Falcon Heavy has been designed for. Falcon Heavy has been designed on what you're saying. It's designed for space stations. You've got uh, NASA just signed a contract with a company called Think Orbital, our former CTO who was with us for a short time, Lee Rosen's company. They're all about basically being able to build structures in space, whether it be for labs, for pharmaceuticals or space agencies, things like this. So you're going to see a lot more. I think Axiom's got one going. China's got one coming up. A more orbital space centers there for various projects. The next step from that, as you say, is pushing on from to the moon, then pushing on to Mars with these sort of projects. So I expect next 10 to 30 years, you will see one or two of these in orbit around the Earth and one's beginning to make their way towards Mars for that purpose. That is when we're going to see more changes again. As we start to push to Mars, you're going to have to bring experts in from other areas. You're going to have to bring in psychologists. People are going to be on a ship for how many years? We don't have cryostasis or anything like this or sleep pods or anything fun uh, as yet. So what's that going to do with the psychology? We're going to need that to be built into the actual architecture of the buildings that we're building to make it softer environments for people to live in. So this is what we're having to look at. It's, It's when we look at things like Star Trek and Star Wars, we see the glossiness, as you said, of what we now see as the internet. We need the disruptors that are going to come in and start pulling pulling things out and making it wires and all back to the sort of cyberpunk-esque, as you say, because that's that's what Musk has done with rockets, and that is what's going to have to happen full stop with space and different aspects. Then it can go back through its polish, but let's leave it let's leave it there and let's see that's the challenge for the next 20, 10, 20, 30 years to your listeners. Okay. Let's start disrupting. Let's, let's walk into these groups and meetings and drop a proverbial knowledge grenade and say, well, why can't we do this? And, and why can't we use this? And let's do it. Let's just run at it and, and see where we're in 30 years time. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. You, you mentioned um, uh, well, hydrogen peroxide and kerosene as a, uh, as, as a, as a launch propeller, as a, a main thing for getting your, your rocket up into space. Uh, are there considerations that have been taken for uh, other things like, say, replacements for hydrazine once you're up there? Like, for instance, uh, uh, hydroxyl uh, ammonium nitrate, like specialists, like there, there are a lot of green fuels that are being studied in, uh, especially with ESA and so on? It's certainly, at the moment, we've ca- even our in orbit tug and in orbit sort of third stage uses the kerosene and HTP mix. Yeah. Because it's a closed cycle engine with that, we're able to start and stop. So we've used that. Ideally, we're, we're, you're beginning to see other in orbit things, uh, water fuels, and as I said, electric propulsion, which do for smaller vehicles. Oh. Uh, we, I am keeping an eye on these projects that are coming in and out of ESA from the, what we're hearing as to get published. And they're great. They are, as I said, the next step because we don't really understand what propellants do in low Earth atmosphere and upper atmospheres yet. So we, we don't understand what using them in space will do. Obviously, there's no sort of actual atmosphere up there. But if we're continuing to use that or people talking about nuclear detonations to push it forward. What is the fallout from that? Well, 
possibly not a good term <laughs> to use after talking about nuclear detonations, but what is the fallout and what is the impact of that? So I, I very much am one uh, that keen to read up on everything that comes out from these and the less outputs and harmful outputs, the only better it can be for us. Oh. As I said, whether that's on the earth, upper atmospheres or in orbit, uh, we need to try and be a lot better. We just need to do better at what we're doing when we do these things. So uh, it's exciting to see the work that ESA's doing and the fact that they're putting money there is just a tremendous thing. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, well, thanks for coming on. And uh, hopefully, maybe we can we can do this again sometime, but like uh, share some more things with Skyrora. Yeah, certainly. Always happy to come back, as I said. Happy to talk about Skyrora. Hopefully, have a few milestones this year to tick off that we'll start to put in the press. So maybe we can come back and talk about that. Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks for coming and all the best. And I'll see you next time. That's great, Phil. All the best. And thank you very much for having us. Cheers.